Hello, this is Dr. Steve Haberman, and I'm here with... Constantine Nasser. And we're both doing the commentary for Hammer's quite a faithful adaptation of Sheridan Le Fanu's novella, Carmilla, written in 1872, and they called it The Vampire Lovers. Now, this pre-credit sequence, which had no narration, by the way, in the screenplay, it was, it was all visual, they probably decided to do the narration in post. This scene is a rather clever combination of two characters from two different parts of Le Fanu's novella. In the movie, in this movie you're watching, he's called Baron Hartog. And he's going to uh, steal a shroud to lure a Karnstein vampire to doom. And also, he's going to, later on in the movie, show the whereabouts of the crypts of the Karnsteins and find Carmilla's resting place. Those were two different characters in the novella. And screenwriter Tudor Gates combined them together in this part that Douglas Wilmer is playing called Baron Hartog. The two characters are distant relations in Lafanu's work, the Baron Vordenberg, who guides Laura's father and General Spielsdorf to Carmilla's crypt at the end, and his ancestor, another Baron Vordenberg, who years earlier lured the Karnstein vampire, who's a male in the book, you're going to see very shortly here that it's a female in the movie, to this tower, which is actually a balcony in the movie, by stealing the shroud. You're going to see the vampire drop its shroud and it has to have its shroud in order to re-enter its grave. And then in the book and in the movie, the Baron cuts the vampire's head off. A man in the book, a woman in the movie. That ancestor who loved Carmilla in the book destroyed as many Karnsteins as he could find in their graves and then moved Carmilla's coffin so that she would be spared through the ages and lived to regret it and wrote to uh, his distant relative, the Baron... Vordenberg of many generations later to somehow find her and destroy her. Anyway, Gates combined and simplified this backstory very cleverly to show Baron Hartog in the movie's prologue stealing the shroud, luring the, in the movie, female vampire to the tower and beheading her. And then later on, this same Baron Hartog with a, with a white wig, Douglas Wilmer will uh, guide Emma's father and the general to Carmilla's grave with no mention of him ever having a previous relationship with Carmilla. I think if you are watching this film now for the first time, but in the context of Hammer movies, you're going to sort of sense something that has not been presented in a, in a Hammer vampire film, which is a, a very distinct supernatural flavor in the presentation of vampire as a ghostly, ethereal being. Um, this is something that is very distinct, even from the variations on the, the vampire theme that Hammer presented with movies like The Kiss of the Vampire. So here we have this very effective, moody opening sequence that comes really straight from the novella, but I think it was not only established in Tudor Gates' screenplay, but director Roy Ward Baker was really in tune with the script, which he effectively translated almost shot for shot as presented in uh, Gates' screenplay. Baker's use of frame rates by filming at maybe 48 frames or 60 frames, I'm not, not sure exactly when we see the vampires move in the mist. Everything is a little bit slower and uh, brings attention to itself. And I think that's one way that uh, Baker just changed the visual language of how to present vampires on films 
from a supernatural standpoint. Yeah, uh, Baker was a good choice for director. The natural choice would, of course, have been Terrence Fisher, who was uh, indisposed, shall we say, at the time. But Terrence Fisher had a different aesthetic than Sheridan Lafanu and Tudor Gates' translation of Sheridan Lafanu into screenplay. Terrence Fisher always said that he felt that his monsters were realities, that they were in the real world. He would put them in the frame with the other characters in the sets. And Baker was responding more to Tudor Gates following the Swedenborgian sort of presentation of the supernatural by Sheridan Lafanu. Now, Sheridan Lafanu was a very famous Irish writer, and in 1872 he wrote groundbreaking vampire novella called Carmilla, which, and that was a quarter of a century before Bram Stoker wrote Dracula. And it heavily influenced Dracula, but it's also its own thing, you know? And Lafanu was influenced by a, a, a Swedish Christian theologian, scientist, philosopher, and mystic by the name of Emanuel Swedenborg. And in 1741, at the age of 53, Swedenborg began to have these dreams and waking visions. And he wrote in The Heavenly Doctrine, a book, that God had opened his eyes, Swedenborg's inner eyes, so that he could encounter, see angels, demons, other supernatural beings. And over the last 28 years of his life, he wrote 18 theological works talking about these meetings he had with spirits from the mystic realm. And so what Tudor Gates did and then what uh, Baker visualized was the inner eye of these characters opening up to the supernatural world of vampires who are presented like spirits that can appear and disappear and do all kinds of things. Now in this shot right here with the breast pressing against the cross, this is the best of times and the worst of times that uh, Hammer is going to begin facing. That was the best of times right yes, there. Yes, yes. Actually, in Tudor Gates' screenplay, and this is the way things were going to change, as we will discuss with the relaxing of uh, censorship, this is how he presented the vampire we just saw. Quote, The shape has a form and body now, and what a body. Camera pans up with lecherous slowness to take in the hips, narrowed waist, voluminous breasts, all seen clearly through a diaphanous dress. This sounds like Groucho Marx's uh, draft of the script. So, Tudor Gates claims responsibility for the idea of nude vampires, emphasizing even more so the lesbian angle. Uh, but this was this was the um, exploitation angle that Fantail Films as we see here on screen, Harry Fine, Tudor Gates, and Michael Style would create. But that shot where now the breast touches the cross as opposed to the cross touching the forehead, things that we would see in, in, in Dracula or, or Brides of Dracula, this is heralding a completely new direction. And all of that really came about because of the relaxation of censorship and the desire, note the need for Hammer and the genre but more importantly, Hammer, to kind of get with the times, because quite frankly, Frankenstein and Dracula were out of step with uh, culture and with what cinema audiences wanted and, and with this new generation of filmmakers. And it takes them adapting a hundred-year-old story to do that, but in a very fresh and you know, tantalizing and titillating way. If you'll pardon the expression. Yeah, you're, you're right. This is a very interesting combination of very faithful and well-produced and cleverly structured literary adaptation 
of an historic novella and exploitation. You know, it's, uh, it's a great combination. Here we have Peter Cushing as General Spielsdorf, who this is terrific casting. AIP was insisting on some kind of name and uh, they basically had an ensemble cast, but they gave Peter Cushing a very uh, appropriate role for him. He becomes a, a determined vampire hunter. He was obviously Van Helsing, who's a different kind of character in uh, the two previous Dracula movies, uh, Horror of Dracula and Brides of Dracula. Here, he's a middle-aged man who, who bitterly swears vengeance at the end against Carmilla for killing his niece, who you're looking at here. She's named Laura in this movie, and Madeline Smith, who's leaving at, the, at that moment, is named Emma. In the book, Laura is the Madeline Smith character who was leaving, and th the niece of General Spielsdorf is named Bertha. So they probably thought Bertha was a little bit of a, of a dated type of name, and they gave Laura to the niece, and they made up Emma for the other character. Now, there have been some complaints about being able to see the tennis courts to the far right here in the darkness of what was the Moore Park Golf Course, which is now the Moore Park Mansion. A, uh, obviously, this is a location shot in Hertfordshire where Hammer found this magnificent exterior, but uh, it, it did have, you know, uh, I guess incongruous uh, tennis courts that, that would probably be uh, an issue but I don't really think there is a problem. Now, it doesn't look like a tennis court. It looks like a park, you know, a park on a, on a big estate to me. As much as I miss Bray when I see a hammer film that's not shot at Bray, I look at a, a stage and a set like this, realizing this could never be made at Bray, and, and it's magnificent. But more importantly, we have introducing here, well, here's Dawn Adams as the Countess, but the introduction to the most magnificent Ingrid Pitt. Yes. As she uh, She's as important to this movie and to... I would say female, dare I say even more specifically, lesbian vampires as Bela Lugosi is to Dracula. I think she owns this part. She always will. Uh, she's a little old for the part. Lefanu wrote this character as uh, the, the Laura character who claims to be 19 thinks that Carmilla's maybe in her early 20s. Ingrid Pitt was 33. She claimed to be 26 at the time, but it doesn't really matter. I think her her age gives her a gravitas and a sophistication that makes it possible for us to, and her beauty, of course, makes it possible for us to believe that she is uh, seductive to both men and women and that she's used to getting her way through her sexuality. She has this kind of Marlena Dietrich quality, I think, uh, the sort of bedroom eyes and the high cheekbones. And ironically, in the 50s, Universal International was trying to do a 3D version of Carmilla, and they were trying to get Marlena Dietrich to play Carmilla at one point. I don't know if she refused or th that idea just died with the project because it was never made, but I think Ingrid Pitt has a Marlena, a young Marlena Dietrich quality. This character also, by the way, that's uh, uh, coming in, The Man in Black, was also in Lefanu's novella, but he only appeared in this scene in the novella. This character, who's played by John Forbes Robertson, who was the only other character at Hammer, by the way, to play Dracula besides Christopher Lee in Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires. Uh, this character recurs in the movie as a sort of mysterious voyeur or vampire supervisor for Carmilla. And uh, some feminists find that to be obnoxious and uh, evidence of the patriarchy of the times that this movie was made, but it never bothered me. But in the book, in uh, the novella, he only appears in this scene. 
but I think that the, the character itself is never presented as uh, it's never clarified if he is a servant of Carmilla is he there to help provide uh, sustenance victims yes he survives at the end but I think we sense this frustration that his master is gone and what is he to do next then again the filmmakers were already prepping for a sequel so maybe this is their way to uh, leave the audience dangling with the possibility of more Karnstein terror to come or is it Karnstein? Karnstein? Ask Peter Cushing he's not sure either now this scene in the novella takes place at the end, not at the beginning, but Tudor Gates very cleverly restructured the story to be chronological so that we didn't have to have a lot of flashbacks from characters when they emerge. And also it allowed Peter Cushing to really dominate the first act and the third act of this movie. He's pretty much absent in the second act, which is developing the relationship between Emma and Carmilla. But in the book, he is at a masquerade party. This is a masquerade party at someone else's estate, not the general's estate. And he runs into this countess who is masked. Everybody's masked. And she tantalizes him by claiming that they know each other, but the general doesn't remember her. And he's, he's loath to admit that he doesn't remember her. This is a much more direct way to do it. And I think uh, very effective. But the novella itself actually begins with this letter that tells of the death of Spieldorf's ward or niece and it, it gives a hint that this this has already come to pass. Yeah, this, so it just this seems... whole scene would it takes place as a flashback at, at the very end of the novella Carmilla. As I said, Tudor Gates restructured it so that it's in chronological order and so we see it in the order that it occurs and I think that's probably for a movie the best way to do it and it also gives Cushing a, a chance to be in, in the whole movie. Roy Ward Baker was not, I guess in later life, not, not thrilled at the construction of the film, at least in his feelings it was um, too repetitious, and that is what some critics find. I don't, I don't find that to be a problem. In fact, it does give you a sense of clarity as to what, you need, like your dispensing of the issue of the vampirism. You, you, you kind of are set up with, this is the vampire, here is Carmilla. She likes to assault and kill young ladies and suck their energy and, and she is presented this way. So that the second half is really about Carmilla as a character. She's just not a monster. Because if you think about Dracula, we have a little bit of Dracula at the beginning of Dracula and then he's just a presence. This actually allows Carmilla to be more of a presence and then she becomes a character. That's my view of this. That's good, yeah. Also, I think it's very Hitchcockian to do it this way. This is the way he structured uh, Frenzy and the pre-Frenzy movie that he didn't shoot, which was called Kaleidoscope. And that is, he, he presents the first crime by the criminal, in this case, Carmilla, the vampire, so that we know when she encounters the second victim we know exactly what her intentions are, you know, the fraud that's being perpetrated on that family, and we kind of know what to expect. And that's, in Hitchcock's view, that's what creates suspense, when the audience knows more than the characters on the screen, especially the potential victims. There's suspense, there's anticipation. The Moon, by the way, is mentioned a lot in the screenplay, and Roy Ward Baker took that quite seriously because he makes sure that on the set the moon is very present outside of these windows with a, with a, you know, a, a light behind it. And it, it's kind of like the supernatural world that Carmilla is part of, 
and that our inner eye as as the as the uh, viewers of this movie are being open to because you know in Swedenborg's aesthetic that is how we can sort of see the unseeable in our normal sense of reality now this sequence the dream sequence was not written this way in fact this i think as well as a lot of the reconstruction of the film must be given credit to james needs who was back not as supervising editor but as editor of the film this idea of juxtaposing the eyes of the cat against Carmilla. This was not in the screenplay, along with this uh, sort of beast. Uh, that's not a, a normal cat. Uh, that, that cat is almost as big as, as Laura herself. So there's, there's inventiveness here that I think is, uh, again, leaning into the supernatural, beings that are not what they seem. By the way, nobody does fraternal warmth and compassion better than Peter Cushing, as we see in, in this scene in particular. Then again, uh, nobody does paternal evil as well as Cushing either. He can swing both ways. Um, just look to the third Karnstein film, Twins of Evil, in which he gives one of his finest uh, later performances as Gustav Weil, and I will leave it at that. But one thing that Baker and Needs choose to do up front is to not include the sounds as described in the screenplay of the, the Karnstein curse calling out to Mirkala, or in this case, Marcela, Carmila, uh, as, as ghostly effects. You'll, you'll hear that later, but the first time we see her walking out into the night in front of the general's mansion, that was noted there, but I think they pulled back. It's like keeping, remember in 1970, audiences really didn't know this story. They're, they were counting on people not exactly knowing what's going on. But they, they held back, I think, a little bit of that uh, supernatural angle, and it would, it would just develop as, as the character would develop. Now, the vampire lovers did have a number of new faces behind the camera, and some new, obviously, in front of the camera. One of the people that they did retain was now production designer uh, Scott McGregor, who had worked with Bernard Robinson, but now that Robinson had left Hammer, which was a, a, a mighty hole that had to be filled. Uh, they filled it with Scott McGregor, who was also very experienced and uh, was going to make a name for himself. Now, in this particular case, take a look at this very interesting move. Talk about uh, ethereal and ghost-like. We're moving into a painting that might look like it's a lap dissolve, but it's, or a process shot, it's not. That is actually a, a painting over a scrim or gauze that moved right into... They, they brought the, the lights up yeah, behind the, yes. the scrim and so, revealing the other set. This was a very thoughtful transition that was prepared in advance by Scott McGregor and Roy Baker uh, following the template that Tudor Gates had provided in the screenplay. As I said before, uh, Baker's really following this roadmap quite closely. And this is what Scott McGregor had to say about preparing for that shot we just saw, all in one take. Quote, In the story, it was necessary for one girl to look through the wall to another girl lying in bed. She was able to do this because she was a vampire, and evidently vampires can do this sort of thing. We could have done the transition in the lab, but the laboratory dissolves take time and are expensive, so we decided on a gauze shot. For this, we needed a painting over the bed, and the scene painter, Bob White, did a beautiful boucher in three days. 
He also did one on the other side of the same piece of gauze. We set up the camera on one side of the gauze with the lights on in the first set and off in the other. As we zoomed in on the Boucher painting, we lowered the lights on the first set and raised them on the other. The painting gradually disappeared and we were able to move in on a big close-up of the girl on the other set. Technically, it was similar to a transformation scene in the theater." End quote. Now, by the way, this is our very first hint at the lesbian angle, and it had to be very carefully uh, monitored, um, really, by the filmmakers because of the uh, notes that were being handed over by the BBFC actually too late because they were being critical of the screenplay uh, a week or so after shooting it actually started. So, uh, <laughs> so they were a little bit of hammer. Yes, yes. You know, what I really amuses me is that uh, both uh, Baker and Ingrid Pitt claimed that they were completely ignorant of any lesbian undertone or subtext in this movie and, or script. And that's, they're lying. They have to be because, I mean, that's what this is about, that the novella was about that. And they presented very effectively and very sensitively, I think, especially for its time. So for whatever reason, they, they claim to their dying day that they weren't aware of it. But uh, we, we have to take that with a grain of... Uh, Wolf Spain. Well, I think Baker was clear that it's a wonderful scream, whether that yes. was Pippa Steele or not, that uh, Style and Fine were perhaps somewhat disappointed that the exploitation angle of the film wasn't enough. But I think all in all, they made a very tasteful film with a couple of scenes that may may have well, there's, have been pulled there's back. one scene in particular that is just gratuitously ex exploitation. We'll talk about it when it shows up where Ingrid Pitt is in a in a hip bath, you know, and uh, she and Madeline Smith play a game of uh, of getaway on the bed. But, uh, you know, other than that, I, I find that the lesbianism and the nudity indeed uh, comes directly from from the story and th from the subject matter. I mean, obviously, Lefanu in 1872 didn't write anything explicit, including nudity or anything like that. But he I mean, he certainly makes it quite clear that Carmela has sexual intentions for Laura named Emma in this movie. This is John Finch, by the way, who, who was just about to embark on an incredible career. After this, he got the lead role, the, the, the titular role in Roman Polanski's fabulous film version of Shakespeare's Macbeth. And following that, he got the lead role in an Alfred Hitchcock masterpiece, Frenzy, where he plays the, uh, you know, the wrong man, the, the last of Hitchcock's wrong men accused of crimes he didn't do. And in my opinion, those were the two greatest directors working at the time. And John Finch got to star in both of their movies right after this. Well, it was a good idea that he did not accept Hammer's offer for a contract. Yes. yes. <laughs> good thinking, John. Yes. She'll be here very soon. Now, this is a, a wonderfully written and performed scene. It's very subtle and it's very effective in, in the way it's underplayed because uh, this is the moment when the Laura character, Bertha in the novella, dies. And also it reveals the sociopathology of the Carmela character because she's, she's very loving toward her victims, seduces them, seems to be quite sincerely in love with them, even though it's female on female love. And yet she says this, she is dead. And it doesn't affect her. She knows that that was going to happen. 
And in this story, vampires don't necessarily turn their victims into vampires. They die. They, they were used as, uh, as food for the vampire. And so she's able to seduce a character, become intimate with a character, and then just without any thought whatsoever, kill it that character. The uh, the rapture of cruelty is the way Sheridan Lafanu has Carmela describe her behavior. We think about this too. Again, the critics that feel that the repetition of this, you know, stops the film or gives the film problematic construction. This is how Carmela has fed off fed off of the villagers for a century or more when we get to the sequence with emma we're going to see a distinctly different emotional transformation or at least maybe an emotional learning from oh and by the way that caused a lot of problems oh by the way i (laughs) want to mention sheridan lafonu does describe that carmila bites her victims on the breast it's a very sexual, it's a, as a matter of fact, it's almost an infantile type of, of feeding. You know, it's been posited by some critics that Sheridan Lafanu was writing about a sort of a, a, an evil mother complex in Carmela because the Carmela character is, sort of takes this woman under her wing. This is, by the way, yeah, what amazing, we were talking about. Amazing. Yeah, with, and this is in the script, but not the camera moves necessarily. And the wind and the camera moves and the fog Uh, This all comes together to really illustrate the other world. This shot right here was actually not in the script. This is something that either Needs chose to do or and and you're going to be able to see this. We're going to point out some differences and a lot of this you can tell from the costume. This shot here of Carmilla going to the castle and all of a sudden Vanishing. vanishing. That's actually a repetitious shot or maybe an alternate take from the scene from the end of the film. But it's it's placed there to now confirm what we may have suspected all along. This Carmela is associated with the Karnsteins. Had that not been there, you would have probably been left guessing, you know, what is what's actually happening. I think that was a wise editorial choice to re- emphasize what what uh, we just saw with the moving camera and the and the door moving. Well, as I said before, this gives the audience the idea of what Carmela is so that now we can be in suspense as to the safety of these characters who we're getting to know well for the first time in the story. So, yeah, you're going to know that Carmela, when she enters the story with the fallen coach and 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 by the way, we're going to talk about how how Ingrid Pitt plays each of these key moments. Uh, not she really not, underplays not, yeah, them. Th- but there's very distinct uh, changes that she made with Roy Baker's encouragement or approval were moments where we see her on screen angry. That was not in the script, but she chose to play it that way. By the way, this this sequence is not in the script yeah, at all. We, we're now getting to points where, okay, James Needs and his team decided to reshuffle the film in the in the in the middle of the film in order to help move the story along. So this is the one sequence here which is nowhere in the original screenplay. And most likely this was shot perhaps at the very tail end. We know that Roy Baker actually shot this sequence because there are stills that show him on the set directing this actress, but we're not just sure when it actually took place 
in the shooting schedule. But it was, a, you know, just, I think, a, a decision. Probably they needed a little bit more vampire, a little bit more horror, a little bit more traditional, you know, hammer horror imagery. But what I, what I wanted to say originally was that the second half of the film now gives us a chance to see the difference in Carmela's behavior towards her victims, especially Emma. Not, not the governess, but Emma. There is a difference in how she treats both of those victims. This is new for her. I think she actually is falling in love with Emma. So she doesn't actually want Emma to die, you know, but she can't help herself. That's why I think it's, it, it is so important that there is an opening sequence. This is, you know, Carmela's seventh, you know, 75th, 80, 85th victim of the last century. But Emma is going to be year. different. Yeah, <laughs> Emma is going to be a little different. And I think it shocks even Carmela. She does not understand what is going on. Now, this is the first scene in the novella. This is where the novella begins with uh, Laura in the, in the book and her father taking a walk in the book across their bridge and encountering this, uh, this coach accident. And everything else that you saw before this is a flashback that comes in at the end from when General Spielsdorf shows up in the story and tells his sad story. This is well done. In the book, the uh, horses react to a Celtic cross that's on the property and rear because of that cross, which makes it look like it really is an accident, you know, if the horses are also vampires. And in addition to the countess and Carmela in, inside this coach, in the book, there's glimpsed a black woman with a turban on her head and a very evil grin. That character was eliminated because it never appears again in the story. And, uh, and Tudor Gates does that a lot in this. He, he eliminates details that in the book are mysterious, but that go nowhere but that add to sort of the mysterious quality of the story, but that are never answered in, in the movie. And things need to be answered in movies, otherwise audiences get very angry with you. Carmilla. Carmilla would be more than welcome to stay with us while you continue your journey. Oh, no, no. Now th this is how Gates describes the reappearance of Carmilla in this moment. Quote, Carmilla, innocent, trusting eyes beneath fluttering eyelashes. That's that not is the way she That is it. not what we see right here. No, there she is. She looks ill and she looks tired. But there's a hint of a smile. Yes. Yeah, the, the script sort of indicates that other world that I keep mentioning that's beckoning to Carmela. Or maybe it's the spirits controlled by the man in black. We're not exactly sure what the chemistry there is. But anyway, I wanted to mention that Sheridan Lafanu, the author of the novella, he became fascinated by Swedenborg and this theory of another world existing alongside ours, but invisible, except only to the very, very sensitive. He became fascinated after the death of his mentally ill wife, did poor Sheridan Lafanu. He had been caring for her and she was a, an hysteric, as they used to call them. Finally, she died. And after that, he became a recluse and he basically wrote only at night and he went out at night in, in Dublin where he lived and uh, became a, a kind of a strange character. He wrote some wonderful stories like The Familiar and uh, A House on Augur Street and Shalk and the Painter and just some wonderful Justice Harbottle, terrific ghost stories mostly and this one great vampire novella, Carmela, and convinced that he was in touch with that invisible world that Swedenborg had talked about in The Heavenly Doctrine. And he, actually he, he thought that that book, The Heavenly Doctrine by Swedenborg, was divinely inspired, that God had 
opened Swedenborg's inner eye and perhaps his own. Obviously not divinely inspired is uh, this highly exploitative nude scene of Ingrid Pitt, who's quite a sport here. And I think it's the one scene that could easily be eliminated from this movie, making the movie a much more serious uh, literary adaptation. But you know what? There's something charming about this combining obvious voyeurism for adolescent males and even older with a, a, a serious, tasteful uh, adaptation of Carmilla, as faithful as, as possible. So uh, I, I don't object to this ob for obvious reasons. All right, you can't put it over a bodice. It ruins the shape. I've never worn anything like this. Tudor Gates, the screenwriter, was uh, very open about uh, claiming responsibility for adding the excessive nudity. I mean, that was one of the goals of Style, Fine, and, and Gates. And this is what he told Bruce Hollenbach back in 1960. Quote, well, as I recall, it was definitely my idea. I went to see a number of Hammer films. While I enjoyed them, the one thing that struck me was that they were terribly outdated, at least for the modern cinema-going public. That was the time over here when the floodgates of censorship opened. I felt that the thing to do was bring Hammer films up to the 70s. So I deliberately threw in the nudes and the lesbians and all the rest of it. I believe it was the first time they'd done that. Now, this had been changed numerous times in the script drafts. Uh, originally, it, it had played out like this, quote, the scene is now for the director to play. It is simply two young girls unashamed in their nakedness with each other, trying different gowns and perfumes, exploring ways of making themselves look more provocative, such as dampening the light muslin so that it could cling to the body. And there was so much more in terms of dialogue. Some things got changed through ADR. But ultimately, it, it turned out that a lot of that was a surprise that both Pitt and uh, Madeline Smith in particular did not know was actually uh, going to happen. This was not something that I think was clear. Perhaps uh, even though they left this scene to be shot on the very last day of filming, which was February 23rd, 1970, on a, on a closed set, I believe, or as closed it was going to be, um, the producers were disappointed that they could not be on set. But Ingrid Pitt was happy to uh, uh, give the boys a, a, a taste of what they missed uh, in, a, in a revealing passing of the hallway where she opened her nightgown and, and, uh, and showed off what the boys were missing. What a sport she was, huh? And by the way, this moment with the wine, that was also an improv moment by Baker and Ingrid Pitt. Yeah, what had happened is Harry Fine, who was one of the partners at Fantail, the production company, realized that Carmilla would be perfect for Hammer because he saw a stage production of it. He thought, well, this would make a great Hammer movie. And he and his partner, Michael Stiles, commissioned Tudor Gates to write a screenplay, and they specifically said, closely follow the events of the book, which he did. And as I said, all he did was really put the, you know, trim them and also put them into chronological order. So Fine said, we had an excellent treatment of Carmilla by J. Sheridan Lafanu with a screenplay by Tudor Gates. We sat through four Hammer films to get the feel of them. We went into a very careful analysis of the market too. So their analysis made them aware that the British film industry was drastically changing at the end of the 60s. The British Board of Film Censors, the BBFC, had altered their, shall we say, old-fashioned classification system to reflect the more open-minded attitudes of, of the audience, of the younger audience that they were getting. So their new AA certificate allowed 14-year-olds to see films that would have been certified as an X before, meaning that no one under 16 was allowed to see them. The age restrictions for the new X prohibited those under 18 to be admitted. 
allowing more sex and violence to be shown. In the U.S., the brand new rating code of the Motion Picture Association of America was even more lenient, letting those 16 and over view R-rated films or restricted films, while those under 16 could attend as well if, the, if their parents went with them or any adult really. So Fine Style, Gates, and James Carreras of Hammer Films realized that the time was right to up the quotient of sex and violence in Hammer Films product, and so their version of Carmilla would feature uh, not just blood and cleavage, but nudity and lesbian sex as well. Now, in 1969 and 1970, Hammer was really changing. You know, we've mentioned that at this point, uh, Terrence Fisher as their uh, premier director was was uh, sidelined, but that that's not really the point. The point was that those people responsible for the Gothic movement were heading for the front door or they had already left by this time. And they saw this uh, writing on the wall some years ago, actually really by the mid 60s. Even the distributors and the partners, the American money and financiers like Warner Brothers and Columbia, they were, they were not satisfied anymore with what uh, Hammer was producing and the resulting box office was lackluster, even for Dracula films. They were, uh, I think, making less and less with each picture. So in uh, 1970, about this time, Tony Hines, who was the uh, instigator of the Gothic movement uh, and, and the key producer at Hammer, he was resigning. And uh, Michael Carreras was coming back into the fold, but James Carreras had lost uh, producer Anthony Nelson Keyes Jimmy Sangster was really not interested in doing gothic films, despite the fact that they would bring him back to direct some movies. The, the creative team, uh, we're also talking about uh, Bernard Robinson leaves, the, uh, the production designer. There's a lot of change going on. And so at this point in late 1969, the idea of a third party coming in to try to partner with, uh, with Hammer that started looking appealing, especially when movies like Moon Zero Two pretty much bomb and some of the other experimentational films just don't hit with audiences. So when, when Fine came up with this plan in 1969, in, in the fall of 1969, he goes to James Carreras, who had just become Sir James Carreras, actually, at that point. The idea was, let's, let's try to partner with, uh, with another American distributor. That would have been... Uh, production team of uh, Sam Markoff and James Nicholson, AIP, and apparently uh, Carreras sold them on the idea over over a meal. And as long as Fantail Films, that was Style, Fine, and, and Gates, could come up with a screenplay in about two weeks, mind you, you know, which he did. Uh, Tudor Gates came up with a script in, in really two to three weeks. Carreras sold the film because they had to start shooting in mid-January because he had already had booked the Elstree stages for some movie he had no idea, and Vampire Lovers just seemed to fit the bill. Yeah, so American International seemed like a, a natural choice to, uh, to partner with uh, Hammer, m much more natural than Warner Brothers or 20th Century Fox, because they were already into gothic horror and exploitation cinema. So, as was his habit, Carreras commissioned a, a very lurid poster for the vampire lovers with nudity and approached Samuel Z. Arkoff and James H. Nicholson, who were the founders of AIP. And it, it was, a, it was a, 
a partnership made in heaven, shall we say. The pair had already experienced... I think heaven and hell would be nice Swedenborgian way. Yeah, (laughs) perhaps, yes, in the the spiritual realm. The pair already experienced with the uh, British production of gothic horror films, uh, that is, Arkoff and Nicholson, in England, because uh, they'd made a bunch of their successful Edgar Allan Poe movies in England, The Mask of the Red Death, Tomb of Lygia, The Conqueror Worm, and The Oblong Box. And so AIP invested 165,227 pounds, which was the equivalent then to about $400,000. And the contract was signed between the two companies on November 25th, 1969. And that was an historic day. John Trevelyan, who was the uh, chief secretary of the BBFC, the British Board of Film Censors, sent a five-page letter to Harry Fine expressing concern about the script before they shot it. He said, it contains a lot of material that we would be unhappy about even with an X at 18, he wrote. So as was their wand hammer, just shot it anyway. In fact, they happily received their X certificate for the finished film without making any of the cuts that were suggested by the BBFC. You know, normally Tony Hines would would go back and forth and and have this relationship and sneak things in. In this case, I think they knew they were in hot water, so they probably deliberately sent the script over uh, a little on the late side, expecting that uh, John Trevelyan was going to uh, lambast them and and butcher the script, uh, which he did. But uh, they got around it because they were kind of forced to. They were they were forced to uh, uh, acknowledge that they would do things that in the end they didn't do. But that was also the value of having Roy Ward Baker there to ensure that this thing was going to be both a classy affair and something that would get through the censors or they would have their back covered. And uh, uh, literally, um, some of uh, Carmela's back was not covered, but, you know, that's how it went with uh, Fantail Films. I should also point out that this here is Madeline Smith, the co-star of the film, as Emma and uh, Madeline, who you will hear on the other track, really right. something rather wonderful by someone I know. But unfortunately, I, th- I mean, I think Madeline gives a wonderful performance and, and it's only half of the performance because she's unfortunately been dubbed. And I, and I know this, you know, if you've, if you've heard her talk or, or expressed any, you know, desire to have uh, seen what the full performance is, it's, this is the same thing that would actually happen to Ingrid Pitt when she went off to her next film, Countess Dracula, she would I also be redubbed. I don't know why Hammer insisted on redubbing these people who are fine actors and actresses, you know. But uh, I guess they had something in their mind that they weren't getting. I'm, I'm so happy they didn't loop Ingrid Pitt in this movie. Yes. I can't imagine anybody doing this role except her with her wonderful sort of alto voice. It's, it's perfect. By the way, this is Mademoiselle Perdue. This is Kate Omar as Mademoiselle Perdue, who's been altered by Tudor Gates from the novella where she's a sort of late middle-aged to older French uh, governess to be a beautiful, sexy French governess <laughs> for obvious reasons, because, you know, Gates and uh, the whole Fantail team, not to mention Hammer and AIP, wanted just as much uh, sexual tension in this movie as they could possibly get between the beautiful women. And and so they did. This, by the way, was a scripted attack. This was in the screenplay with this expressionistic uh, shadow work called for by, by Tudor Gates and very well realized by uh, Roy Ward Baker, I think. We're now in the the body of the film, which, as I said before, has been reshuffled. You can tell this by noting the nightgowns that the women are wearing. So Madeline Smith was wearing a, a nice white... Oh, there's the psycho sound. There's a little right. homage to Bernard Herrmann. 
Yeah, Harry Robinson did this uh, score, and it's a beautiful score. I think it's his best one. I'm also very partial to his score for The Oblong Box, which was his first score for a horror film for AIP. But this, I think, is his, his greatest because it combines a very kind of gothic romanticism with with uh, sort of shocking and uh, suspenseful music, and it's it's a wonderful listen. Here we're with Carmila again, returning to the castle. She's going to fade away. Another angle taken from the finale of the film. Again, if you look back at, uh, although that, that was in the script, but what she's wearing doesn't exactly translate to what she was wearing in the previous scene. This is a very faithful adaptation of a scene in the novella, and I think it's Ingrid Pitt's best acting in the whole film. It's an interesting reaction by Carmela. She's much more kind of bratty and bitchy in the novella than she is in this. She seems much more sympathetic and, and pitiable as played by Ingrid Pitt, and she's, she's very disturbed by by death, I think, by the finality of death, since she hasn't experienced the finality of death, but she's caused it for all of her victims. And in this version, vampires can be in the daylight, which, by the way, Bram Stoker also included in his novel of Dracula. Dracula was seen in the daylight with diminished powers, but uh, he could go outside without burning up. That was a, uh, an innovation that was created by F.W. Murnau for his plagiarized version of Dracula, Nosferatu, in 1922. But originally, vampires could go outside when they felt like it. Now, if you listen to those bells, those are like church bells that really would be nowhere within what, we, what we're actually witnessing, this, this uh, funeral procession. And this is distinctly noted in the script where this, this sound, the point of audibility to Carmela, as, as Gates writes, is going to distort. And I think that was really, really, really clever. And, and this yeah, playing being that of they're anger, church, church yeah. bells, you know, it's like uh, Dracula's reaction to a cross. The, the, the script calls for ta to the script calls for Carmela to act with a smile to try to suck it all up, but she's playing this with anger, anger and all pain. Just I, she's a very pitiable character here. She she realizes I said before that she's a sociopath and she is, but still she she just seems to be so pained by the idea of the finality of death. Now I, I don't want to read too far into this. In, in saying that this is what she chose to do, this is Ingrid Pitt, but knowing that Ingrid Pitt was essentially raised as a young child in a concentration camp mm -hmm. and had a really awful experience in, in life and saw what most of us will never be able to imagine. Also, she was a mother at this point. She had a young daughter. And so there, there is a, a sense of experience and wisdom and grief, all, all of those things that I'm sure she as a 32-year-old woman who had seen a lot more than most most of us had at probably at that age, she's bringing this to this eternal, sad, conflicted uh, vampire. vampire that is longing for obviously something else. Who's been, uh, who's been undead for a hundred years. You're right. I mean, that's good. Yeah. And, I mean, I, and that's why I think Ingrid Pitt is a better casting choice than somebody who was a little bit more age appropriate, say uh, in her tw uh, 20 or 21, who probably could not bring that kind of gravitas and that, that, that dark deepness to the character of Carmela. There, there's an absolute sadness, yeah. I think, to her 
whether she, as I said before, in, intentionally chose to do this, it was something that was just natural, she connected with it, but uh, clearly in, in, there, there have been numerous uh, Carmilla adaptations over the last 50 years since this movie is 51 years old, which is crazy. Um, yes, she will probably be forever identified with this. I, I would be surprised if her performance actually is ever get, is surfed, surpassed. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I totally agree. I, this is a very well-made movie, but I think what makes it a classic and the, the, the version of Carmilla that we return to all the time is Ingrid Pitt. That was a casting coup that we can thank Sir James Carreras for because, you know, she wanted the part and she was cozying up to him at uh, one of his many uh, charity functions and uh, he fell for it. And so... Uh, well, I think she wanted something. She didn't know what it was. Yeah, well, he she told her, come to Hammer House. I've got, I've got a few parts I want to share with you. And when she showed up, according to her, it was Carmela, Mircala, and Marcela. And, Which and, is all and there one you go. Character, yeah. Now, Harry Fines claimed that he found her, but I think if we're going to listen to Ingrid Pitt, she, she met Carreras first, and that relationship was solidified. And she became really the last... I would, would say the, the last major Hammer horror star post, let's say, Barbara Shelley or some of the other latter, latter stars. I mean, they were trying to build up Ralph Bates and, and some of the other young men. Well, the thing but, is, she only was in two Hammer films, yeah. and the other one is not too good. So this is the movie. Not this, because of her, though. I think, no, I mean, not because she of her. She tried hard. No, I mean, you know, I mean, everybody tried hard on Countess Dracula, just didn't work. But this is what she will always be remembered for. Very much, again, like I said before, Bela Lugosi is Dracula, you know? Now, this scene is, I don't think, gratuitous. I think this is perfectly logical depiction of her sexual seduction of an innocent. And as that, I think, you know, with the nudity and everything, I think it's very powerful. And again, I think this is one of the reasons why this is the version of Carmilla, because it's not coy. It is what it is, you know? It's about a lesbian vampire who seduces an innocent young girl. There's a great close-up of Madeline Smith as she is being uh, initiated into a, into a new world of uh, maturation, let's just say. Yeah, it's terrific, unforgettable. I, I didn't forget it. I, I was way too young to see this in the theater, but I saw it anyway, and uh, believe me, I didn't forget it. So through the courtesy of Wayne Kinsey, we actually have a copy of Roy Ward Baker's own screenplay. And this has all of his notes, all of his edits, all of his uh, improvisation, his ideas, and, and new, new bits of dialogue and, and action, and things that he felt like would move the story along. So one of the things that was actually cut was a very lengthy four or five page scene that included a jester. This scene was inspired directly from the actual novella, but it was altered as you will hear, and uh, it was filmed actually. And the removal of this scene resulted in the need to restructure a lot of the film because this took place right after the moment where Emma and Mademoiselle Peridot were in the garden. So here it is, as read by Steve Haberman. Yes. Imagine you're in the garden with uh, uh, the governess, Mademoiselle Perdue, and Emma. And Emma, looking past the governess along the drive, suddenly brightens. The governess, noticing the change, turns to see what has cheered her. Emma points. It's the jester, Emma says. The jester, proceeding down the drive, a tiny, bizarre figure in a medieval outfit. He wears cap and bells, carries a violin, and has an assortment of straps and bands about him, which dangle various charms, amulets, and trinkets. 
He is a walking, bizarre, come one man band. His face is ugly, but immensely cheerful. He tinkles as he jogs along. Emma and the governess look quite joyful. Emma says, you remember him, how we teased him. He's such fun. The governess smiles at the memory. She says, yes, I remember. And Emma says, tell Carmela. And the governess says, all right, but don't overexcite yourself. Emma smiles and shakes her head, looks toward the jester, waves toward him. The jester doffs his cap and bows low. Grinning broadly, he dances around comically as he plays a jig on his fiddle. Emma laughs, turns toward camera, calls out, Carmela, do hurry. The jester at the foot of the terrace does a double cartwheel, miraculously hanging onto his fiddle and then advances up the steps, bowing low, jingling his doffed cap, wheezing comically. Emma looks up at Carmela with joy. Carmela has an amused but condescending and slightly wary smile on her face. Behind her is the governess. Does the jester have the faintest hint of wariness in her, his smile to her? Or is he wary of the governess? The jester goes into his tumbling and mincing routine. Emma delighted with the performance. Carmela keeping a set superior smile throughout. The governess always slightly in the background. While the jester, when the jester has finished, collapsed and pretending to be out of breath, Emma applauds vigorously while Carmela languorously pats her hands together. The governess just smiles. The jester unwinds himself from his straps and bands, begins to display his wares, making guttural sounds of enthusiasm. For the first time, we realize he's a mute. Emma says, poor man, he can't talk. He was born like that. The jester bows appreciation and goes into a marvelous mime, indicating that he's laying out magic charms for them. Emma interprets. These are magic charms, she says. A protection against vampires, Carmela frowns. We must buy some, Emma says. Emma dips into her purse, offers a gold coin. The jester accepts, mimes his most grateful thanks, makes the coin appear and disappear twice before pocketing it. Emma laughs. The jester advances, jingling to give Emma her charm, then offering one to Carmela. Carmela, forcing a smile, takes the charm from him. The jester makes Carmela start as he does a back somersault away from her. He bangs and jingles as he sorts through the wares and then produces a leather wallet. He unwraps the wallet and displays shining instruments, Emma explains. He's very clever. He also takes out bad teeth or blunts sharp ones. Emma shakes her head, smiling at the jester, who mimes disappointment and rolls on the floor by Carmela. Carmela sweeps her skirts away in disdain and grimaces. The governess is immediately behind her. The jester, the broad smile on his face, fades abruptly, and something like terror shows in his eyes. The jester scrambles to his feet, gibbering. He backs away from Carmela. Carmela glares at him, flushed, angry. The governess frowns. Emma looks at both with alarm. Emma says, Carmela, what is it? Carmela says, he's impertinent. The jester mouths agonized sounds to Emma, pointing to Carmela or the governess, keeping well away. No, he's trying to tell us something. The jester gibbers to Emma, using his two index fingers to indicate the teeth of a vampire. Emma frowns, trying to make out what he wants to say. Carmela advances on him as he holds out a supplicating hand, seizes it by the wrist. Carmela, insulting wretch, get away from here, at once! The jester's in agony. Carmela pushes him away from her, and he thankfully gets to his feet, scampers away, rather pathetically pausing at a distance to bow to try and signal alarm to Emma. Emma says, but Carmela, he meant no harm. The governess says he was trying to frighten you. Had your father been here, I would have had him horsewhipped. The governess turns and moves back to the house. Carmela follows. Emma looks after them unhappily. Now, this scene in the book, where it comes from, he's not a mute. He's a hunchback. 
And he notices that one of Carmilla's uh, teeth is sharp, a fang, and he off offers to blunt it because that's one of the things he does. And she takes great offense and, uh, and wants to basically have him beat. But they put this in the movie. They shot it. But I think what James Needs as the editor realized was that it was a big bump in the story because this movie is very tight. And it's rushing along toward its climax. And there's a lot of suspense about the relationship between Carmela and Madame Peridou and, of course, Emma. So I think they were wise to remove it, to keep things moving along. Yeah, Roy Warbaker was sorry to have had that scene cut. Uh, obviously, he enjoyed working with the actor Lindsay Kemp, who played the jester. Kemp was a master of mime. And uh, it was noted in, in Baker's autobiography that that was one scene where I think uh, he felt it was a pity to have lost the sequence. But, I, I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. And, and a lot of the things, actually, that are cut in the film are literally expositional scenes right here where the barkeeper is, is just explaining the legend of the vampire and the legends of the Cardensteins. And, and things that we as the audience either know or subconsciously know or we really don't need to know. In fact, by cutting these pages, we're talking three and a half pages of dialogue between Renton and uh, the landlord, Kurt, here. Uh, that would be minutes on screen. And so we had this little flashback, which is an interesting way to kind of cover that up. You can now see where the editor has sort of taken control of this film not that James Needs was any slouch and not that Roy Ward Baker didn't probably come in. He he did not have a hand in removing the gesture scene, but obviously uh, the movie is 91 minutes long, which is, is, you know, on the longer side for a Hammer film. And, and only in the, in the latter years were films going up close to the 100-minute mark. But as you said, it, it's, it's an emotional and uh, suspenseful pace that we're trying to keep. Now, this is uh, Harvey Hall as Renton, the butler. You may remember him as one of the guests, ill-fated guests of Prince Prospero, Vincent Price's Prince Prospero in uh, The Mask of the Red Death. It's a very good part for him, probably the best part I remember him ever being in. And this is a character that was added by uh, Tudor Gates to add some suspense and complication to the story and to give someone else for uh, Carmela to seduce and, and kill very much like the development of the Madame Peridou character to make her young and sexy so she could be uh, also seduced and killed by Carmela. And he's a, he's a very active and sympathetic character in this because he's the one person who realizes what's going on and uh, he does something about it. He, he brings the doctor in and he insists on uh, disobeying Madame Peridou's advice and putting garlic flowers in Emma's bedroom to keep the vampire away and, of course... Carmela can't have that, so uh, she eventually seduces and destroys him. Harvey Hall actually had the distinction of being in all three of the Karnstein films as Inspector Heinrich in Lust for a Vampire and as Franz, one of Peter Cushing's witch hunters in uh, Twins of Evil. Roy Baker really was quite invested in these characters, and I think that's what's one of the charms of the movie, one of the, one of the values and strengths of the script and the film is that each character gets a moment to really allow you in on them, whether it's the governess, whether it's any one of Carmela's victims and even Renton, or even you, 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 the, the, the cast obviously helps, <laughs> helps it along like Ferdy Main's doctor. Everyone has a little bit of personality, but uh, I want to talk about how 
Roy Ward Baker was brought on this film. Certainly he had done a handful of Hammer films, some very successful like Quatermass and the Pit. If you want to know our thoughts on that, listen to the commentary. And then he would go on, unfortunately, to do some films that weren't so successful, Moon Zero Two, or the film following this, Scars of Dracula. Hear my commentary if you're interested there. <laughs> but but honestly, like this is, you know, he, he rises and falls with his material. And here he clearly had something he could sink his teeth into. So this is what he told. If you'll pardon the expression. Yes, I know. I'm, I'm bad like that. But uh, Roy Ward Baker told Sam Irvin in an early 1973 interview shortly after making this film in his magazine Bazaar, quote, Hammer rang me up and said, we're thinking of doing a horror picture. Well, I'd been waiting for the day. I knew I could not keep doing non-Gothic Hammer films forever. I knew they were watching me with a keen eye and they were waiting for the right script that might be able to persuade me to do one. If they had offered me a Dracula or Frankenstein at that time, I doubt I, I would have accepted. I said to myself, oh, here we go. I knew if it was coming, I knew it was coming sooner or later. They then asked me if I would ever read the book Carmilla by Joseph Sheridan Lefanu. I said I had read it and I had liked it very much. In fact, the first time I read it was when I was 14 years old. So I became more interested. They said, we've developed it into a script. We feel that there are lesbian overtones and we have brought these out. From the motion picture promoting point of view, the industrial side, it was thought, well, we've done everything we can with vampires that the mind of man can possibly imagine. So let's have a woman and let's have lesbianism. Ha ha ha. Well, I stuck my head right out and decided that in my own way, I would try to save this book's dignity by at least toning down the lesbianism and doing it seriously and tastefully. Hammer had some doubts, but the one person who agreed with me was Ingrid Pitt. She was very bright. She was not stupid by any means. She was not just another actress. Well, we got together on the script and I said, look, Ingrid, I am not in the business to make fun of people who are less fortunate than I, whether it may be lesbians, lunatics, cripples, homosexuals, or whatever. People are whatever they are, and as far as I'm concerned, any character has got his own rights, his own status in life, just as any true life human being does. This point is something I am very intense about, something that holds true in all of my films. I'm not going to push the characters around like cardboard, because if I do, they are just going to be cardboard. That is no good. It is no good for an audience, and it was no good for a storyteller, which is what I am. I told Ingrid that I was not going to send this thing up and have one of those ha-ha-ha lesbian vampires. That's not for me. Then she said, you're absolutely right. Of course not. We're going to do it seriously. Do it straight. It may sound preposterous. It may sound childish or juvenile. It may sound silly but let's not make it cheap. So with her assurance, I made the picture. One thing which I insist upon constantly is the old, old principle laid down in King Kong. Even if your hero is a monster, he has still got to be understandable, if not sympathetic. I refuse to make a villain out of anyone. He may be destructive and have to be killed to prevent more havoc, but at least he is understandable and perhaps pitiable. The vampire lovers had a funny script. It told the same story twice with no surprise or twist in the second half. It did have some great performances in it, particularly Ingrid, who was marvelous. Super. She could not have been better. She understood it perfectly. Ingrid is very, very smart, brighter than Marilyn was, and she was serious about her work. She is a concerned person, and as I have said, the most promising actress I have worked with since Marilyn Monroe. I really mean this. She has got the talent of Betty Davis, the unique sex appeal of Marilyn Monroe, and the intelligence and wit to match. You watch her. She's going to go far. 
and the notices on Vampire Lovers were excellent, and this is very gratifying both for me and Ingrid. So uh, I, I think that summarizes what uh, Roy Ward Baker had to say, had to do, what, he, what, what attracted him both to the material and for him to, to really rise above any of the uh, exploitation angles that both Hammer and Fantail Films, as well as the AIP leadership, uh, all wanted. And, and so when uh, AIP would have a, a, a poster that would say, you know, like, not for immature minds, um, that's, that's not the movie <laughs> you're actually watching. And, and even though he had to add in some of the things we talked about uh, that, that could have been maybe toned down a bit, that's really not the, the reason you watch this movie. If so, like, that's why Virgin Witch might be remembered. I don't think so. The, the Vampire Lovers is, is just such a much more rewarding experience that holds up 51 years later. Yes, the warning should be to mature your mind. This, of course, is the great uh, Ferdy Main, uh, very memorable as the head vampire in Roman Polanski's The Fearless Vampire Killers, falling off his horse. Now, he fell off his horse honestly because here's what he said about riding horses, and this one in particular. He said, I'd been warned about this, so I said, give me a slow horse. They said they had a fine horse, nothing to worry about. It appeared in circuses, very docile, so off we went. And I had difficulties following them, so I spurred it on, but it didn't react. Then I somehow or other touched it somewhere on its neck and it went down on its knees because it's a circus horse and that particular spot meant to go down on its knees. And I said, cut. And Roy said, who said cut? And I said, I did, sir. He said, how dare you? I'm the one who controls the studio. Get off that horse. Anyway, he was really angry. And so was I. Somehow or other, they used the shots cutting me out. I don't think I ever saw the whole film, but that was Roy and me. I don't think I ever worked for him again. That's funny. Anyway, Ferdy Main, of course, was a, a, a veteran actor. He was born in 1916. His real name was uh, Ferdinand Philip Meyer Horkel. And he was usually a villain. I remember he was one of the Nazis in um, Where Eagles Dare. Wonderful movie. He was in films from 1943 with The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp. Not a bad way to start with uh, Powell and Pressburger. His other films include uh, The Echo Murders, uh, Innocent Bystanders, Revenge of the Pink Panther, Conan the Destroyer, The Killer Within, and he was in some second features for Hammer before he appeared in The Vampire Lovers. He liked uh, Ingrid Pitt very much. He said she used rather provocative language between takes, and it was rather delicious being bitten by her. And I had a very nice scene in the picture with the most wonderful of actors, Peter Cushing. So he enjoyed his experience on this movie. He died in... 1998, and uh, he will uh, always be remembered. I actually attended a screening of The Vampire Lovers with Ferdy Main in the audience. Actually, it was a Q&A beforehand. This was at the American Cinematheque in 1995, a huge Hammer Horror Weekend and a lot of guests, and this was a highlight. This is an interesting scene because this is a moment when uh, they felt like they had to go to a flashback and this is in the screenplay as well revisit the uh, the scenes with the baron hartog and to remind us of the uh, the pre-credit sequence because he's going to come back into the story now some people find that this is repetitious i don't i think uh, it's fine to identify this character who up until this moment was a mystery because he didn't reappear in the story and we're over an hour into the movie so uh i don't mind this this is George Cole as Mr. Morton. Um, he had an early uh, appearance in a Hammer film, 1959's Don't Panic Chaps, a comedy. 
but uh, he didn't do any other Hammer films, but he's uh, known for really a lot of work opposite Alistair Sim, whether it's playing the young Scrooge in Scrooge or in movies like A Cottage to Let or An Inspector Calls or all the St. Trinian films. But he's very good as Roger Morton. A lot of these people do a lot with a little. John Finch does a lot with a little. Yeah. He has even, even less. But when you think of the cast that this film ha has pulled together, it's, it's exemplary of why we love Hammer films. Even these latter-day films. You know, Michael Ripper is not to be found, and, and, and George Woodbridge, Woodbridge is yeah. nowhere to be found. <laughs> right. But look at the ensemble that has been pulled together. You look at movies like Hands of the Ripper or uh, other, other films that, that would, uh, I guess, herald the next phase of what we would call the, the decadent Hammer period. But this, this is a very interesting transitional film because it's still... And, and and I say this because this is prior to Cushing's wife. She will she will pass very shortly after this film is in production. In fact, she was she passes right after uh, the performance because they're prepping literally for the sequel to Love a Vampire, what would become to Lust for a Vampire. Two days into production of this film, they had a script for the sequel, and of course, those sequels in short order would be nowhere near as good though twins of evil is is strong in its own way yeah no it's yeah, twins of evil is pretty good but it, it takes nothing from lafanu except the uh, names of uh, mercala and karnstein other than that uh, it bears no resemblance to uh, to carmila but you've got you've got george cole john finch peter cushing douglas wilmer in the same scene in this you know vampire staking sequence I two mean, sherlock holmes <laughs> in the same carriage it's it's very impressive yeah it is well what you're saying is true gordon hessler and ferdy of course and ferdy <laughs> who's now dead but uh, gordon hessler who was a he was born in Germany and raised in England, but he did most of his career in America. And he came to England in uh, the late 60s to make horror films for AIP. And he said it was incredible, the resources, not only the costumes and the props and the set pieces, but also these wonderful actors who, you know, basically they were on the West End in the evenings and then they would work in television or in Hammer films or in whatever movie was being shot in England. And there was no sort of uh, a pecking order about it as there is in America. They were jobbing actors and they were happy to work. And whatever movie they were in, they gave it their all. And their all was plenty because they were very, very experienced. But even those that were not as experienced. I mean, we're talking here. Here's the the patriarchy of of. Well, the uh, funny uh, thing uh, that's and, funny. And you this, is, this is a female-driven story. Yes, and Ingrid Pitt, who's the least experienced of all of them, steals the movie, because she's just perfectly cast, and she brought not not just her talent, but also, I, as you said before, quite quite perceptively, I think uh, a hint of her sense memory, shall we say, uh, uh, her past, into this part of Carmilla. Okay, take a look at this shot. The composition, the moving camera, the sound, and especially the color. Amazing. You know, Madeline Smith, when she talks about this film, and as I've read about uh, also Pippa Steele, but, but Madeline was explicit with saying, you know, she was you know, almost like right out of Catholic school. She was very young. She was very inexperienced. And yet, I mean, she's, she's a grown woman at this point. The story, of course, uh, Emma is a teenager and that was never going to be allowed even in a hammer film but i think madeline plays this extremely well and the sexual awakening that she goes through and the the love that 
I think it's it's clear that she has has a care and a love for Carmilla as well. So this is not just a one way one way street. Uh, she obviously does not want to die, but I think this this is an interesting character uh, that is one of a handful that Hammer was able to present on screen. This kind of goes back to Barbara Shelley in uh, Prince of Darkness. And Linda Hayden would do the same in uh, the previous year's Taste the Blood of Dracula. And these performances by all of these women in this film would go on to really uh, lead the way for very complicated uh, characters and relationships in latter films of the 70s, 80s, and, and onward to today. But I think The Vampire Lovers in particular was quite groundbreaking in this presentation of complex sexuality, love relationship what is good what is evil and and all of that in between i want to mention how extremely well structured this ending is it's one of the most memorably shot acted directed scenes in all of hammer it's extraordinarily gothic and it's all in the script by the way the, all of this intercutting between the house and carmila trying to to make away with emma intercut with these men trying to find the crypt and hints of the flashback and we're going to get some of the uh, flashbacks from the novella where the Baron Hartog unearths these uh, Karnsteins and, and stakes them in bloody detail as well in this scene. It was all designed that way in the script, even mentioning her beauty and then cutting to her. That's in the script. But that being said, the way James Needs puts this all together, I think, is quite brilliant. And it builds to a, a breathless climax. And as I said before, the score helps immeasurably because it's not just scored for horror, for shock or suspense. It's also scored for romance and lust and even sex. You know, there's a, uh, a hint of, uh, of a romantic lushness to Harry Robinson's scores that someone like James Bernard didn't always provide not to put him down. I think he was a great composer as well, but different. They were both romantics, but, I think Harry Robinson sort of uh, emphasized the softer side of vampires. This and Twins of Evil are two scores you can listen to for their listening pleasure yeah, on their own. Very much um, so. The sequence we just saw with the flashbacks, I like the fact that we're now seeing different takes. I mean, the, the shot of the vampire coming towards Baron Hartog, different angle, it just freshens up yeah. your memory again clever now in this scene this was not supposed to be as you know this this biting of the ear this uh, eroticism was not noted in the script because while they knew at the time of writing that it was going to be a mature woman playing the part i don't think anyone knew it was going to be ingrid pitt in 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 november of 1969 it was probably you know maybe james carreras had an idea but the script was written first and there was no age given for this character so Ingrid Pitt just you know dispenses with the references to uh, childlike embraces and, and all this sort of dancing around sensuality she's all woman that is that is absolutely for certain and uh, nobody is going to take that away from her and that's part of the strength of her performance she dominates this this encounter the female vampire as seductress as dominatrix as the power player in this uh, this encounter, and, and that's all Ingrid Pitt. Yeah, as a matter of fact, the the movie takes it further than the script because the script doesn't wind up in bed, as, <laughs> right? As it does 
in this movie in a few minutes. Uh, Renton actually gets to uh, to bed Carmela before she uh, destroys him. I just love the. This is cinema. This is pure cinema. The foundation of cinema is editing. You know, everything's important, but really the one thing that film can do is cut from different places, different time periods, and the juxtaposition of all those makes sense and tell a story. And that's precisely what the script and now the filmmakers are doing here at the end. And let's not forget cinematographer Moray Grant, whose first feature film for Hammer as a DP, not as a camera operator, was The Vampire Lovers. He had done several episodes of Journey to the Unknown for Hammer, but this was his move to the big time, and he would go on to shoot other films such as Horror of Frankenstein, Scars of Dracula, Vampire Circus. But this film, I think, is his most elegant, and I think he had really clever ideas, as we're going to see in a moment where the dagger is thrown. An on-the-fly decision creatively and technically leads to one of the most effective and memorable uh, moments in the film. So, uh, and there's John Ford for Robinson again. By the way, I don't the, know why he's there. I don't either. By the way, the reveal <laughs> of uh, Carmilla as uh, Malarca and Marcela by a painting is directly from the novella. In the novella, it's a painting that's restored. It's been uh, moldering in, in the home of uh, Laura and her father for all these years because they're related to the Karnsteins uh, distantly through the mother, who's dead, of course. And when it comes back from the restorers, it uh, looks exactly like their house guest, Carmela. So even though that episode didn't take place in the home, using the painting as the reveal was, was Lefanu. So the Vampire Lovers began filming on January 19th, 1970. Like I said, uh, the, the stages at Elstree, stages two, seven, eight, and nine, uh, were actually on hold, and they were actually held over from the last film that Hammer had made there, Taste the Blood of Dracula. And those sets would be reused, particularly the church, the Gothic set at the end, which would become the Karnstein Castle. But uh, the film was made for about 165,000 pounds. It came in actually a little under budget. It had a couple days over schedule due to some uh, second unit sequences, probably that pickup sequence with the village girl's death which was not in the final script. They also filmed at the Walhall Mansion, which served as Roger Morton's house here. I mean, that's obviously a, a soundstage at Elstree, but the exteriors anyway. And it was actually one of the few films not shot at Black Park. It was The exteriors were shot at the Moat Mount open space close to Scratchwood Country Park. And it was all shot in about six and a half weeks as Roy Ward Baker was preparing his next film, Scars of Dracula, while Hammer itself was preparing for their next film, The Horror of Frankenstein. Six and a half weeks, that's luxury. That's uh, 32, 33 days. Roger Corman used to make these in three weeks. Anyway, it was worth it. It really looks good. Even during production, but by the way, this is the scene I was mentioning that's not in the script where actually uh, Carmela gets uh, Renton in bed. I think they probably thought that was going a bit far, but uh, Roy Ward Baker didn't, nor did Carmela. So even during production, Carreras knew this movie was going to be a big hit, and so did AIP. So he initiated a sequel with the title To Love a Vampire, and as was his want, he, he had a poster made for it, but AIP passed on it. American International didn't want to make another one of these movies. 
There was some talk from Lewis M. Hayward, who was the uh, representative of AIP in London, that Hammer was uh, difficult to work with and had a different uh, professional quality than he was used to, shall we say. So anyway, for whatever reason, AIP passed on it. Now, The Vampire Lovers was released at London's New Victoria Cinema on September 3rd, 1970 by MGM EMI and went on general release in England on October the 4th. AIP released it in the United States on October 22nd. The Philadelphia Daily News described it as a literate, witty, and dead straight vampire movie. Dead straight, really? That's kind of ironic, isn't it? Variety said, Miss Pitt shows a grave and sinister attractiveness. And Hollywood's hometown paper, the Los Angeles Times, I remember reading this, gave it an unqualified rave, courtesy of their veteran reviewer, Kevin Thomas, who reviewed most of the genre films. And Kevin Thomas said, an excellent horror film. What makes for really good horror is not great quantities of blood and guts spilled across the screen, but the sense of pathos and loneliness surrounding the monster heroes, a rare and pleasurable experience done with intelligence and taste. So, Wasting No Time to Love a Vampire, which ended up being called Lust for a Vampire, went into production from July 6th to August 18th, 1970, before The Vampire Lovers was even released. The same team made it, fine style and screenwriter tutor, but uh, directing duties went to veteran Hammer screenwriter Jimmy Sangster. It actually was offered to Terrence Fisher first, but he was found to be physically unable to participate, shall we say. So uh, having done a faithful version of Carmilla, Tudor took nothing from the novella for Lust for a Vampire and came up with his own story, which has been a controversy ever since, shall we say. But I think we, we don't know what the original version of that was. No. We don't know what Terrence Fisher would have done with it if it had been the same screenplay. or I mean, we just don't know. But it is what it is, and it's no vampire lovers. Let's put it that yeah, way. Yeah. Don't you think it's amazing that AIP just didn't want to make a sequel despite how much money this movie made, how successful it was, especially in the UK? Uh, AIP didn't even release the movie until February of 71. So uh, they, they, just, they just misunderstood the film and their market. This is wonderful. This is uh, the scene where uh, Madame Paradou is finally uh, given her due and also the scene where John Finch shows up and we see the aforementioned in-camera special effect. I don't know why they were doing in-camera special effects in this movie, but they're very effective. I mean, the scrim, which could have been a dissolve, and the scene where a knife is thrown and breaks a vase behind Carmilla as she vanishes, obviously could have been done as a, as a, a matte shot or as a, just a simple dissolve, but they chose to do it in camera. I love Kate O'Mara's performance here. But I think what's great is now in this, where Emma actually sees the the evil, the evil, yes, the the difference. Now we see like bloodshot eyes and blood on her mouth. We've never seen Carmilla this way before. Right. Even when we see her attack Ferdy Maine, now we see her truly for what she is. And I think it's been interesting, the, sort of the progression of the way she is revealed as a monster. Madeline Smith is very, very believable in this part. When she's innocent in the beginning and sweet. and uh, when, sweep of the dress. Yes, that was wonderful. When she's, uh, you know, being seduced and, and enjoying it, dead and loving it. And now when she's, you know, without makeup and dying, she's always extremely believable. 
Ingrid Pitt is, is like she's nearly in tears as, as she's almost reluctantly and she looks away at she, well she's ashamed yeah, yeah ashamed to and, reveal how evil she is but this is her nature yes exactly and of course he uses the the uh, the dagger as a as a cross as a holy symbol that Carmela cannot resist I mean seriously you're, you're not I don't know and she doesn't react like a, other vampires yeah. it's not the cliched reaction she's very I don't know mournful about this and here's the special effect that we advertised twice. Very nice. But that was all, again, unplanned. And I think that's the inspiration that a good script and, and like the momentum, the energy must have been on set. Everything's allowing you to be creative, not just simply how can we make this and get it done faster. Now, there was another moment that was scripted earlier that was right from the uh, novella and they cut it. And I think they cut it because it would have been too confusing. It's a moment earlier on when um, Carmela appears. We know she's at the house and she appears here at the Carmela castle to these men. And General Spielsdorf runs at her with a sword, which is directly from the novella. And she grabs his arm. And even though, you know, it's a woman, it's, it's Carmela. He's completely paralyzed and he drops the sword and falls to his knees and then she disappears. And then we see her again back at the house where the action is taking place. And I, I don't know if they shot that or not. It is, as I said, from the novella, but it would have been very confusing, I think, if that had been left in. By the way, I should note that uh, Douglas Wilmer here carrying the lamp um, he didn't actually remember making this film when asked by uh, Dick Clemenson. Did he remember uh, his name? No, he, he did. He, you know, he said he, this movie actually bored him while making it. He, he only took the part because uh, he got to decapitate a woman, I guess. Uh, he just thought that would be an interesting role to play, but uh, not a big fan of horror films, and he had forgotten Peter Cushing was in the film, although he, he really admired Cushing. Um, but again, you know. He's very good at it. He, yeah, he, he's, a, he's effective even as the young man. Here's what uh, Ingrid Pitt actually wrote about uh, making this movie. She said, I read the script with a good deal of trepidation. We hadn't really got into the big nudie scene yet. And personally, I had never in front of an audience been naked to take off more than my hat. It uh, bothered me slightly. Then I thought, what the hell? I'm proud of my body. So why shouldn't I show it off? Shooting was at Elstree. The first morning I arrived uh, where I tiptoed onto the set to watch a Peter Cushing scene. I wish I hadn't. A few days earlier, I'd been to the studios to have a mask of my head, and there was Peter standing with a startling, lifelike copy of my head in his hand, held by the hair and dripping blood all over the floor. The shooting was easy, no traumas. It was a bit touch and go at first. All those women herded together under stress could have produced a crop of prickly ego. Instead, we all got on marvelously together, had some good laughs too, especially when I had to give Kate O'Mara the fang bit. The fangs were made as regular dentist caps. Repeatedly putting them in and taking them out loosened the fit, and each time I bent over Kate, the teeth made a bullseye of her cleavage. Funny how helpful technicians become in those circumstances. Someone from Amicus must have heard the giggles coming from the Vampire Lover set. Milton Sabotsky rang and asked me if I was interested in doing a spoof horror with John Pertwee. Of course, that became The House That Dripped Blood. And she said later on, you know, she didn't really become the big star that we expected her to be from this movie because for one thing, these kinds of movies stopped being made pretty soon after this uh, with the uh, death blow of The Exorcist 
big studios started investing in this kind of subject matter and Hammer and AIP and Amicus and those companies went out of business one after the other. But she said this, horror scripts kept coming in, but they were all more or less the same. In The Vampire Lovers and Countess Dracula, the nudity was an authentic part of the story. Suddenly, nudity and sex was the story. It wasn't prudery that made me turn them down. I was ready to bear a breast with the best of them. But the stories, ugh. Luckily, my bank manager was given a booster jab by television. The television parts came in fairly fast and bridged the gap until The Wicker Man. And of course, she had a very memorable part in The Wicker Man with Christopher Lee, one of the great of all time. And here, as God intended, Peter Cushing does in The Vampire uh, in his inimitable style with both uh, his determination and a bit of sadness. It's no uh, surprise that Val Luton was going to make a Carmilla film in the 40s. And I, I would say that uh, Ingrid Pitt's performance in this film is reminiscent of Simone Simone in Cat People. Mm. I think there are very few uh, actresses of the first, let's say, 50 years of cinema in terms of in the horror film that were given roles of dimension that were both the monster and the victim. And I think seeking out roles for women in, in those films hard, hard enough, but then actually finding the right actress in the right part uh, in the genre that, that didn't uh, serve them well. Uh, th this film served Ingrid Pitt very well, and she served the film extremely well. You know, when you think of Hammer films, you think of Dracula and Frankenstein first. And it's interesting that Christopher Lee was approached to be in this film and he turned it down. And it's no wonder because if you think about it, no Dracula film had ever had a, a part as rich as Ingrid Pitt would have as the vampire Carmilla in this film. And Dracula was often underserved. And if you can imagine Lee's response to probably reading this script, probably disappointed. But that goes to show you just how valuable the character of Carmilla is, both to Hammer films and to the genre. And I would argue that Ingrid Pitt is in the very top pinnacle of the most complex of, of Hammer's performances. You know, you've got Peter Cushing's Baron Frankenstein right at the top, collectively across a handful of films. But Ingrid Pitt in one movie is, is pretty close to uh, the peak of, of Hammer's uh, greatest monsters. They take this so seriously. That is one of the stamps of the Hammer films and why we still watch them is no matter how lurid or even sometimes unbelievable the circumstances of the stories, they're done with such dead seriousness that the audience has to take them serious as well. And uh, there's not a hint of camp in uh, their best films unlike the best films even at uh, Universal in the 30s in the Golden Age, the James Whale films. I'm thinking of the, the Invisible Man, of course, The Old Dark House, and especially The Bride of Frankenstein. There's a great deal of, uh, of self-parody and uh, self-conscious campery in it. But the Hammer films, not so much. And I think that's what makes them timeless and why we take them seriously. And they give us that gothic frisson and that sense of at least in our imaginations, that there is another world, as Swedenborg said that he glimpsed with his inner eye. There is another world alongside ours that is just as real, and every once in a while, if we're not careful, it intrudes on our world and reveals another kind of truth, you know, a truth that even if we don't acknowledge, we do have to deal with. <laughs>